Well, good morning. I thank you for uh, braving the weather today and coming. So um, it's rough out there. By the way, you're, you're great for even being here. So we should move this thing to the park, I think. Uh, if it were not for the chaos involved, we would do it. We have met there, but uh, there may be some PTSD from the COVID days. So I don't know. Maybe you don't want to do that. But it would be a great day to meet outside. It's just gorgeous. So uh, get outside there and enjoy it. Um, so as I said, we will be continuing on in our study of the book of Romans. We are a couple weeks in, and I don't know if we're knee-deep in it yet. We're definitely in the water, and uh, we're wading straight on into the book. Uh, last week, Treb did a marvelous job in verses 16 and 17 of really explaining what the gospel is. And so uh, if you haven't heard that, you can go to our website and listen to uh, that sermon. It was a wonderful explanation of why we are not ashamed of the gospel. And so we're going to use 16 and 17 to set the context for what we're rolling into today. Because, of course, in Romans, as in all these letters that uh, the, uh, the apostles wrote, they're not broken into verses and chapters. They were letters that were read out loud, and so they're, all, they're connected to one another. And so when we preach short passages, we often um, uh, run the risk of breaking things up too much and forgetting that they are all in a, in a, in a chain of thought. And so... The question, though, that Paul is now laying out is he's answering this question, how do unrighteous humans become righteous like God? So it's a massive problem that he is starting to lay out in verses 16 and 17, and then from 1.18 all the way through chapter 4, he's going to be explaining uh, why it is that we're in trouble. And it's a very, it's a beautiful explanation. Today, though, he's starting to lay out this, uh, this oh, formal charges against humanity. I'll put, if I put it in legal terms, that we have been, uh, we're now being charged by a grand jury that, that the, what is against us, against a holy and righteous God, he's going to lay these charges out. And we're going to explain why that's important and how it's connected to the gospel today. So, um, when Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first, then for the Gentile, it begs a question. Saved from what? So it says, for the salvation of everyone who believes. Well, why do I need to be saved? What is salvation and why? And in verse 17, he says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. So it was hidden, and now it's been revealed, and it says a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, from beginning to end, for just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, why do I need faith to be righteous? Why do I need to be saved? And so Paul is going to begin to answer that question starting in verse 18. But before we dive into that, let's pray. Lord, we come to you as a people in need of your help always. You know, we sing songs that you alone can save, that you alone save us, Lord. And it is the cry of every honest human that we need help and that there is something desperately wrong with us and that you alone can make right. And so we come to you today and, and Lord, I confess that it is with trepidation that we walk into these texts. Um, they're heavy. They are very weighty. And so we come to them, Lord, with, with awestruck wonder. Uh, we come to them to study them as the redeemed who are looking back on what you have saved us from. And I pray, Lord, that you will clarify for us what the gospel really means and that the response of every believer in here would be just exaltation, that we would praise you, that we would leap into the air with rejoicing, that we would sing the songs of the redeemed. So I pray you give us clarity today as we study. Help us to understand what you are teaching us just in these three verses, how it fits into Romans, and encourage us with it as we go throughout this week. As we pray every week, we give you a moment to just ask the Lord to teach you what he wants you to learn. So just take a moment, take a breath, and breathe in, big breath, and breathe out. And know that the Lord is God and that he is with us here, that he is here to help and ask for his help to teach you what he wants you to learn.
As we also do every week, take a moment to pray for someone who is beside you or that you brought with you or that you don't know. Just You can open your eyes and look around and look for someone that you don't know and, and see their face and pray for that person. But intercede for them. Ask the Lord to teach them, to encourage, to challenge them, to teach them what he wants them to learn today and that they would walk away better understanding who he is. Lord, we thank you for your great overwhelming kindness and grace and for the love that you have lavished on us. Um, we love you, Lord, and we lift all these things up in Christ's risen name. Amen. So, so given the context there of walking into chapter or verse 18, uh, there's this very long intro in Romans, right? All the, we just now finished it last week, and I think this is fifth or sixth week into it. I don't remember which one it is. I'm not really counting. But... Yeah, don't count. We're going to be in this thing for a while, so just kind of settle in. It's going to be all right. But we're going to be actually in verses 18, 19, and 20. I think I said 21 earlier, but it's just these three verses. And then next week we'll be in 21, 22, and 23. Um, and hopefully as we walk through these things, the, the links of the chain will start to make sense as to why this is all in here. And then it will begin to clarify for us what the meaning of the gospel is. So it says, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." Uh, your version of the Bible may have a four there in verse 18. Um, by the way, there's a whole lot of, of, of ink spilled on uh, single words in Bibles for commentators and scholars and things. So uh, if, you're, if your Bible has the word four, that's because that word is originally there and it connects verse 18 with what happens in verse 17, right? So you have this picture of the gospel is now being revealed. Uh, righteousness from God has been revealed, okay? So something's been revealed or, or uncovered, and what's been uncovered in the gospel is God's righteousness, that righteousness is by faith. And so then it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So the wrath of God, what is that? Um, sometimes it's helpful to look at when we see that God is doing something, what we will often do is we will take what God does or take an attribute of God, maybe his love or his holiness or his mercy, and we will think of that to the, the highest human degree, and then we'll like multiply it infinitely. That is always a bad idea. The reason is applying a human attribute or a human activity to God is entirely erroneous because God is entirely other or separate or holy. His holiness means his separateness. We're going to get into that in a, in a little bit here down the road. But the wrath of God is very different from human wrath, okay? When I think of human wrath or anger, and really the word there for wrath is often translated anger, like in, uh, in James 1 where it says the anger of man or the wrath of man does not achieve the righteous life that God desires. See that connection between anger and not righteousness? Here, God's wrath is revealed as, a, as part of the gospel and the revelation of his righteousness, his wrath is being revealed. And it's whose wrath? It's God's wrath, and it's from heaven. Not only is it God's wrath, but it's from heaven, so it's directly from him, just in case anybody is wondering. But this wrath of God, it is his anger. And anger, wrath, always has an object. What is the object of his wrath? It is the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's the object of his wrath. So human wrath is always um, chaotic, it is unhinged, it is violent, and it always leads to destruction. It is based in pride, it is fueled by hate, and it always leads to hurt and devastation. In the, in the, the wake of human wrath is always chaos, it is always sorrow, it is always loss, okay? And human wrath does not heal anything. There's no redemptive quality to it whatsoever. I am wrathful against you. You're wrathful against me. We begin this cycle and on and on we go until one or both of us is dead. This is human wrath. Based in pride, fueled by hate. God's wrath is based in his holiness and it is fueled by his love. Now, I know that's going to sound contradictory. 
And I want to welcome you just to the study of God. There are a lot of seemingly contradictory things about him as you study in the Word. They're not contradictory. They are concepts of both and. He is both merciful and he is just. He is both kind and, I don't know what the opposite of kindness is. But anyway, so you have these, I mean, I'll get off track here if I go too far down the road. But you think, how can his wrath and his love, how, do the, how are those things connected? How can you say that God's wrath is based in his love? Well, if we look at what the object of his wrath is, it is against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Let me ask you a question. Who of you who saw a child that they love, let's say it's not even a child that you love, just a child. Every adult in this room, if you saw a child actively being harmed by someone and you did nothing, would you love that child? If you are an adult, a parent and you saw your own child actively being harmed and whatever horrible thing is running in your mind right now and you did nothing, could you then say, I love that child? No. Love always leads to action. Always. It is a verb. God's love is leading him, driving him, imploring him to do something against the sin which destroys and maligns and devastates the children that he loves. He will not stand forever while his children are under the penalty of sin. For him to do that would be contrary to his nature, and he would not be God. Do you understand that? His wrath is an outflow of his love for us because his wrath is against the sin which destroys those that he loves. So if anybody has ever had someone that they love die of cancer, wouldn't you not love to just, if you could by your own anger, destroy once and for all cancer, would you not do it? Amen, right? I would blast it back to hell where it came from, right? Anybody who's ever seen someone they love die of cancer would love to destroy it. Sin is the cancer of humanity. It is the cause of our death. It is the cause of our loss of hope. And God will not allow it to stand. He will not allow it to stand. His wrath and his love are the same river that flow from the throne of his grace. For those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and have, just like he says in the verse before, who, are, who have received the gospel by faith and who would now have Christ's righteousness, that river is a river of life and a quiet, still water. For those who are not and have not received the gospel and have not by faith received the truth that Christ rose from the dead and, and uh, died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead and that by trusting him they can receive this salvation, that same river is a rapid of his wrath. It is an unstoppable tsunami coming to wash them away. The wrath of God is being revealed. The NIV here says is being as opposed to just is revealed. To give a little bit more um, uh, presentness to what is going on. That his wrath is being revealed from heaven against these things. Now, I'm going to break them down into two kinds of wrath. Maybe just by times. So, don't take this with a grain of salt. I mean, I, I got this from some commentary. So, I'm not the only guy who's done this. But, so... The idea that the wrath of God is being revealed, that there is, there is a passive wrath of God, and he's going to explain this later on in this chapter. As we get to verses 24 through 32, there's going to be a giving over to. Uh, God gives them over in verse 24. In verse 26, he gives them over. Uh, verse 28, he gave them over. It is a passive in the sense of, it's not an active application of his wrath, that he is giving people over to what they want and allowing them to suffer the consequences of their evil desires. It's devastating. And we're going, to, we're going to wade through all of that. And it's not a whole lot of fun. But it's also going to be revealed in the future from where we are now. And I mean that in the sense of if you read in the Old Testament, uh, the day of the Lord. And if you read in uh, the book of Revelations that it is the, uh, uh, there are these, the, the final bowls are the, the wrath 
of God, to see seven bowls full of the wrath of God that is poured out. And that is his final outpouring of wrath against sin. You see this in chapter 2 in Romans where he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. It's like a dam that is God is holding back his wrath until the appointed time. But there will come a day when that dam is opened and his wrath floods out on everything. Except those who are saved from his wrath. Those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus to be saved. So, when it says it's revealed again, so what is the object of his wrath? It's the, the who in all the situation. All the godlessness and wickedness. Your, your version uh, may say uh, unrighteousness and, uh, or unrighteousness of men or ungodliness. Ungodliness or unrighteousness of men. The, the word there for godlessness uh, literally means to, uh, to be against um, who God is in himself. It is to be against him as, his, as, as he has revealed himself, to be against God himself, to have no reverence for him, to have no awe for him, to not worship him. It is to reject him actively, but it is against God himself. The second word there, the wickedness or unrighteousness of men, uh, it, it literally means the, the not rightness of men. So that is a, and it is a universal term for the sins that we have against one another. So in this, that God's wrath from heaven is being revealed against all the, the vertical sin that we have against God himself, and then the horizontal sin that we have against one another, okay? So humans are the ones who sin. It's not cats and dogs that they're sinning or whatever. It's just humans. Humans sin, and we are the cause of all of these things, of a judgment that comes because we have a wrong relationship with the holy God, and a judgment that comes because we have a broken and unright relationship with one another. Some people have uh, lined it up with the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are commandments directly related to God. The final six are our relationships with one another. But then in both of these things, it's like two sides of the same coin. We have the vertical offense against God, and we have the horizontal offenses against one another. It is sin up and down and all around. It's human sin, and his wrath is revealed against that. So what do these people do? By the way, um, when it says godless is the wickedness of men, it's not just dudes, by the way. That's, uh, that's humanity. But anthropos is the word, which means humans. But so wickedness of humanity, who, what do they do? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. To suppress means to hold down. And it's this idea of not just, in order to hold down the truth, to suppress it, what has to be true? You have to know that it's there. You cannot suppress something you're ignorant of. You have to know that there is truth, and then you have to actively suppress it. So it is intentional and it is continual. It is an intentional, continual suppression of the truth. Um, there's this a great quote from a guy named uh, Cranfield, and he says this, sin is always an assault upon the truth. Love this. Sin is always an assault upon the truth. That is the fundamental truth of God as creator, redeemer, and judge, which, because it is the truth, must be taken into account and come to terms with if man is not to live in vain. means for no reason. It is the attempt to suppress it, to bury it out of sight, and to obliterate it from memory. To obliterate what? That God is the creator, that he is the redeemer, and that he is the judge. But it is the essence of sin, I love this, that can never be more than an attempt to suppress the truth. An attempt which is always bound to prove unsuccessful and futile in the end. Why? Because God won't let it stay that way. He will not allow mankind to suppress the truth forever. He won't. Why? Because it harms those that he loves. And because he loves us, he is doing something about it. And what he has done, as Paul is going to explain in the next several chapters, is that he has sent his son to take care of that problem for us. So, those that suppress the truth by their wickedness, you don't have to like be alive for very long to realize that people do this all the time. Okay, uh, we lie to get out of stuff. Like, if you ever said you didn't lie, that's the first lie you've ever told. I mean, that's how it goes. So, I mean, you know, and, and, and if you think, well, I'm doing pretty good, then Jesus comes in in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's like, yeah, no, you're not. You say, uh, you say uh, I say don't murder. Well, have you ever hated your brother? Well, n- no. Okay, well, you just lied. So, sure you have. Have you ever hated somebody in your heart? Yes. 
Okay, what about you guys? Have you ever committed adultery? No, no, I have not. Have you ever thought lustfully about a woman? Uh, yes, okay, there you go, fine. You, you can't read the Sermon on the Mount and get away from it. The reality is that we suppress the truth by our wickedness. And who is the we? Well, the we is everybody. It's the Gentile. And in chapter two, Paul's gonna, he's kind of, the, the, uh, the, the aim is very broad right here, all of humanity. He's gonna zero it in on the, on the Jews who were in Rome because they should have known better, right? He'll zero in on them in chapter two. But for right now, this is a broad look at humanity. Humanity suppresses the truth by the things that we do. And we constantly contradict what we do with what we say. I do it all the time. I mean, I ask my kids, this is a dumb question, but I do it because I need to hear their answer. Do you see a different guy on Sunday than you see on Monday? Am I the same guy here that I am there? And, you know, sometimes I say yes, sometimes I say no. But the question is, do you see a difference in what I say and what I do? Because if you see that, that can't stay the same. But we all do it. The reality is that I say things all the time, and then I contradict what I just said by my activity. I say I love my wife like Christ loves the church, and then I say something mean to her. I, I uh, say that I don't lie. I don't actually cheat on my taxes, but I, we, humanity, we say we won't lie, and then we cheat on our taxes. I say that um, uh, we should... Uh, love our neighbor, and then I don't know their names. I say that I should forgive as God in Christ forgives me, and then I won't forgive the slightest offense against me. And I'm just talking about Christians. This is just the children of God, much less those who do not know him. So that the suppression of the truth by our wickedness is evidence against us that we are separated from a righteous and holy God. Now, he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known. So this word against since or therefore because. So this wickedness and suppression of the truth, God has revealed something about himself. Since what may be known about God, which is interesting, it says what may be known. Because it does not say everything that can be known about God, just what can be known about God. And as a quick little side tangent, do you know that there are things about God which we will never know? There are things about God which we will never comprehend. Why? Because he is infinite and we are finite. We are limited. He is limitless. There are things about him which we will never be able to comprehend because we do not have the mind of God. And we can spend eternity learning who he is because he never ends and he never begins. We can spend eternity studying just the attribute of his mercy and never reach the end of that study. Isn't that amazing? So, those who say that they've come to the end of knowing God and can declare very, very boldly he does not exist have never really tried to seek him because what may be known about God is plain. That word, verb for to plain, uh, or plain really means uh, to be openly visible. It's a root word that means to shine. So it's like shiningly, blazingly, brilliantly obvious. God has made what may be known about him plain to those people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then I love this phrase, how? Well, because God made it plain to them. So Paul's like, listen, I don't have to worry about circular logic when I'm talking about God. If God says I made it plain to you, you can argue, but you're wrong. And so it doesn't really matter. Why do I know that God has made that which may be known about him plain to those people? Because he made it plain. But then Paul in his grace, or God in his grace, excuse me, through Paul, explains to us now what that looks like. So when did this start? When did this revelation start, this revealing start, since the creation of the world? So from in the beginning God, all the way to today, and ongoing into forever, God is revealing what? his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. Just in the creation, I want you to just think about all the things that the created order can teach us about God. And as we learn more and more and more about creation, like from, from the teeniest, tiniest quark, at the, the, the tiniest level that we can conceive as humans, to, to the, the most simple animal, single-celled organism, which is infinitely complex in its brilliance, 
up to uh, the, the stars in the universe. Like if you look up at the sky, the galaxy that we are in is 130,000 light years across. That means it takes a, a particle of light 130,000 years to go from one side of the galaxy to the other. And that's just the galaxy that we live in. And you look out and in the deepest parts of space and all they see is more and more. And it's wonderful. We are tiny specks of meat and bone on an infinitesimally small spot of dust in a gargantuan universe. And we think that we can stand up and point our finger to heaven and say, you don't exist. It's lunacy. Humanity can't even remember to tie their own shoes all the time. You know, like we forget our keys. We lose our glasses and we can sit up here and say, I am so brilliant that I can say that there is no God? Really? That is why Paul wrote Romans. So that that person can look at this and say, huh, hmm, maybe I'm in trouble. It's here for a purpose. And it's not just so that we can use it to bash people who don't know Jesus. They're lost. Remember that. We have the light. We are the light. We are the salt. Use the word to bring people to Jesus. That is why he wrote it, because he's writing to a bunch of Romans that he's never spent any time with. He will. He's going to go to prison and get lots of time to sit around and talk to the Romans. But he writes this letter so that they will understand what the gospel really is. So, for since from the creation of the world, God's invisible quality. So, there's a little plain word here. It says invisible. That word really literally means unseeable, which isn't really a word in English. But when it says that his unseeable qualities have been clearly seen, it's a super cool play on words. So the reality, though, is that God is invisible. He has invisible qualities, things that we can't see. Like when uh, in, in uh, 1 Timothy, when Paul's writing in, uh, uh, to Timothy, and he says, uh, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, that God is invisible. And in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 11, this crazy phrase where it's talking about Moses in this hall of faith of fame. And it says that he, he received encouragement and he was able to persevere because he saw what cannot be seen. How? How did Moses see what can't be seen? Well, he did it by faith. Like, are you starting to get it? There is an aspect to being a human that is invisible. There is an invisible kingdom all around us. The Bible is as clear as a bell about this. We see Elisha when he's sitting there and he tells this, his, uh, his aide that there's these... Uh, uh, the, the city is surrounded by this army and this guy is terrified and he's like, Lord, let him see. And he opens his eyes and he sees chariots. He sees angelic armies hosted around this army. There's a world that is very real that you and I can't see. And by faith, some have seen it. Because since the creation of God's world, of the world, God's invisible qualities and his eternal power, eternal means everlasting, means it never began, means it never ends. So something that never began is infinite. He has infinite power. The word is dynamis, and it's like, if you need power, his eternal power means it never began and it never ended, is available from God, and he's been revealing it to us since the creation of the world. In his divine nature, that which about him that is true, his divine attributes, his qualities about him, his mercy and his love and his kindness and his, his, uh, his, his holiness and all of these things, they have been revealed to us. So we have these gospel that's been revealed, a righteousness that comes through faith, this wrath of God that's been revealed from heaven against, and the object of them is the godlessness and wickedness of men that suppress the truth by their wickedness. He's made, known, he's made known to us what is plain to us because he's made it plain to us about his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. They can be clearly seen. Then it says, being understood or perceived with the mind from what has been made. All we have to do is walk out the door and look. And you can see that there is an order to the world that we're in. Like, we tend to, especially if you've got a boy, boys tend to be chaotic in their beautiful, climbing, destructive chaos. They are by nature chaotic. Little chaos engines, just like everywhere. 
Lord willing, they grow into men who learn to order their life. Why? Because God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And you look and you see a tree that's growing out in front of our building. It has a structure. It has a design. It has an order. Have you seen a bird that has a brain smaller than a pencil eraser weave a nest that I could not weave? If you gave me a bunch of mud and straw and said, make a bird's nest that will stay in this tree for a decade, I could not do it. But a teeny little bird can get in there and make a nest. The squirrels that are too dumb to get out of the way of a bike driving down the road make nests and they get food and they plant and they, and they bury food in the ground and then they remember where it is. It's incredible. Birds travel thousands and thousands of miles every year from one place to another, and then they go back. How do they know that? Is there like a little bird manual? No, it's because God gave his order to his creation. And from the smallest thing, as I've already said this, if you study chemistry or physics or any science whatsoever, you discover the beautiful order that God has used to reveal himself to us. And if it's not some sort of science, you could do it in poetry or humanities or art. In all of the study of all of the things, God reveals himself because he is the author of all truth. So when we seek the truth, we seek the truth giver. And we see himself revealed in what we seek. He has made it clear to us from what has been made. Why? So we have the who. We have the when. We have the what, for since the creation of the world, he's made his invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature known. How? Well, he's made it understood from, by what has been made. He's made a creation so that we can look and discover who he is. Why? So the men are without excuse. Why does it matter? Is God trying to win an argument? No. He's trying to make us righteous. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Why do we need power? Because we don't have it. Something has to happen for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. From what do I need to be saved? I need to be saved from my separation from a holy God. Um, A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which I recommend over and over and over and over and over again, talking about the holiness of God. He says we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. A lost person cannot conceive of the holiness of God. They cannot conceive of it. But they can be convicted that there is something deeply wrong with them, and that is the Holy Spirit's job. He does that through the word and through the love of the church for one another. He also does it through the express conversations that we have with lost people as we bring them to the word and they say tell me about Jesus I know no one's ever actually asked me that before by the way but man I would love it if they did it would just be like a great day I'd be like fine cancel your schedule we got all day so the reality is that we cannot conceive of the vastness of God's invisible qualities his eternal power and his divine nature and yet he has revealed them to us mankind cannot reach out from our blindness and reach to the knowledge of God. It must be revealed to us from him, and he must do something in us to draw us to him so that we can see who he is and know that we are without excuse. Do you know that people make excuses, by the way? Like, we make them all the time. Well, I did that, but. Well, I had my reasons. Or, well, sure, you said that, but. I mean, and almost every time someone is brought up, some kind of problem is brought up with somebody, there's always a yeah, but. Well, yeah, but, you know. I mean, sure, Hitler was bad, but did you see what they did after World War I? I mean, really, come on. Sure, Stalin was, I mean, sh yeah, but like, you know, there, were, there was stuff going on. There were, sure, this guy was a serial killer, but, you know, he was treated badly as a child. I mean, sure, I... Gosh, we, we are really, really 
really good as humans at making excuses. And God tells us that we have none. The word there for excuse is the, the negative of the, of the word uh, used in 2 Peter 3.15 where he says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Uh, that's the word we get apologetics from, apologia. It's like that you now, that men have no reason. We are without a reasonable excuse for what? To deny that God exists and that we are godless and that we are wicked. That is what Paul is saying. He's laying out the initial charge against humanity to say, fellow humans, and Paul himself included, wait till we get to chapter 7. We are separated from the righteousness of God by our wickedness and by our sin. And all we have to do is, if you look in the creation around you or look inside of myself as a created being, I can see that something is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. And he invites us to keep reading and to discover what it is that's wrong about us. And then finally, when we get to chapter 5, <laughs> he will say, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a long way to get there. So I invite you to stick with us. And I want to end with and trying to answer a few questions that you might have. Okay? So I will not answer all your questions. I know that you have a lot more. Trust me. So if you have one that I don't answer, please email me or come talk to me and we'll set a time and we'll discuss it. All good. A couple questions that pop into my brain that a lot of people seem to have is, okay, what about those who've never heard this? Are they um, godless and wicked and are they still condemned? Okay. First, I want to answer that question broadly by saying that God knows what he's doing. Okay? He knows everything. He is not missing some. He doesn't forget some people. He knows what he's doing. So when it comes to the lost in the world, he knows and he has a plan. And every one of those who are his, he will get. Second, um, if you feel convicted that someone you know doesn't know the gospel, would you please tell them this week? If the Lord lays it on your heart, oh my God, you know, my sister, she's lost. She doesn't know the gospel. Call her. Take her to lunch. Say, hey, there's, would you read through Romans with me? Just invite him. Say, hey, can you read Romans through me or read the book of John with me or something? This really matters to me. Would you do this with me? If you know a neighbor, if the Lord's laying someone in your heart, tell them. And if there's a, a, a tribe that you are, know that is lost and has never heard the gospel, what are you doing here in Oklahoma? Go! Like, we'll give you money. I'll sell my car, whatever. We'll just, like, if you go, go, or go give money to somebody who does those things. Do something about it. If the Lord's convicted you about it, don't just sit there and ask questions. Do something. This is, uh, kind of theologically speaking, we're going to get into, what we, this is what's called the general revelation of God. And there's specific revelation, which is, um, uh, we'll get into later in Romans, and it's the, the, the prescriptive, what do we need to do to be saved? This is the general that you can look at creation and realize that there's a God and realize that there's a problem, okay? So that the person who is in this space, they need Jesus. But Jesus' name is not in here. So one, they need to keep reading, or someone needs to tell them. Like, if you wonder what's going on with that, wait around until chapter 10. Paul will explain it to us. That's going to be in, like, 2027, so it's going to be a while. But stick around for that. And to answer the question, though, in a way that feels better to me, which is by reading something else in the Bible, I'm going to look at Revelation chapter 14. To answer the question of what about those who haven't heard, okay? Or who never had the opportunity to hear, and I don't have answers to all those questions, okay? It brings hard questions to people. And I don't want you to sit around and be racked with guilt because you didn't say something to somebody. God is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. But listen to this. This is Romans, excuse me, Revelation 14 in verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. What is the angel proclaiming? The eternal gospel. To who? 
every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment, his wrath, has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Worship him who did what? Is the creator, because he has made it clear and evident to them. So that all those people who have made this, had this made clear to them, I look at the creation, there's an angel that is going to come in the book of Revelation and tell everybody the gospel. I'm assuming that God knows what he's doing. And I'm assuming that we can trust that those who haven't heard will get a chance to hear. I don't know how, but I know that God can be trusted. Okay, second, how is it that people cannot see? Like, how can these people, how can you look at creation and be like, we, this is all made up? Or this is, this is all random, whatever. How in the world, have you ever thought that? Say, how, how can someone look at this stuff and not like get it? Well, remember that we have an enemy. He's called the father of lies. And he's very, very busy, the devil. And Paul talks about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. And he says, The God of this age, which is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One of the reasons that people cannot see what is clearly seen is because the devil has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. That should inform how we pray. If you know someone who is blinded, pray that the devil's work would be destroyed, that the Lord would bind them and that he would over there open their eyes. It should inform how we pray. And it should also inform how we talk to people who don't seem to get it. Like, by the way, you didn't come to Jesus because you were really smart. You came to Jesus because he saved you. The Holy Spirit drew you to him and raised you from the dead and opened your eyes to the light of the glory of Jesus. That is why you're saved, not because you're great or because you went to church or because you read your Bible or because you went to church camp because you wear the right kind of shoes or fix your hair in a certain way or whatever ridiculous thing we say to say that I somehow earn salvation. We're all saved by grace through faith. You and me and every lost person that, that hadn't heard of Jesus yet. So people can't see because the devil's real busy. And I hope that we are busier than he is. But we are alert to his schemes, and so we should pray accordingly. Finally, um, I thought that uh, the God of the Old Testament was like the God of like wrath and smashing, and the God of the New Testament is like love and kindness and mercy. Um, most folks who ask that question have never read the Bible. So uh, if, you, if you are thinking that, my encouragement to you would be uh, to read the Bible, just to get it, and just, just start reading it before you ask a lot of questions, and actually... Before you question what the Bible says, I'm going to encourage you to read what it says first. And then we can talk about questions. But most people think Jesus is all love and forgiveness. And just a quick reminder that at the end of Revelation, uh, or in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes back and he's in front of an army and a sword is coming out of his mouth. Like there's lots of smashing. So it's not just in the Old Testament that God smashes things. But in the New Testament, I want to read a very, very famous passage for you, but we often forget to keep reading. So this is John 3.16, which most people know. See, the football game is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a great verse to memorize, and it's a great verse to tell people. But as I always encourage you, keep reading. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Do you know that? God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. It's amazing. Why? But to save the world through him. Jesus comes to save the world. Why? Well, in verse 18, because whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Because the righteous live by faith. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They are without excuse. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, that's the devil tricking us, saying, oh, remember, if you go to the light, unapproachable, glorious light of Jesus, your deeds will be exposed and you will be shamed 
Jesus says that truth sets us free. That is why sin always obscures and covers the truth. Because if people know the truth, they'll want to come to the Lord. Because in him is freedom and life and joy. But, in verse 21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly, same language, that what he has done has been done through God. So remember, brothers and sisters, those who are of the the tribe of the redeemed, you carry a message of hope to a blinded and broken world. They're condemned in their sin already. They don't need us to condemn them. They need us to give them Jesus and to love each other so they can see what love actually looks like. And then they need us to love them in return so that when we tell them that God is a God of love and draws them to him, they'll have some idea of what that looks like. So you may have questions, and that's okay. There's going to be a whole bunch of questions in Romans that you will not get answered. And I mean ever. So just kind of settle down and just wait till we get to 9, 10, and 11. I've got so many questions about those chapters that I may never, ever know. So it's okay because the gospel has been revealed to us and we can come as the redeemed and we can trust by faith that what he says about us is true and we can walk out in what he has called us. So let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you that Uh, your love for us is always demonstrated in action, that you do not sit idly by, but that you sent Jesus into the world to save us because we are condemned without him. We are condemned by our sin and that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. And we confess, Lord Jesus, that that is us. We have walked in a way that is contrary to your holiness. We have walked in a way that is against who you are, and we have sinned against our fellow humans, Lord. We who are saved and have put our faith in Jesus just praise you. Help us to sing your praises as we respond to you in worship. Lord, if anyone is sitting and listening to my voice right now and they have never put their faith in Jesus and been saved, I pray that you would draw them to you right now. And that as they sit here in this seat, that they would understand that even though they are distant from you, that you and the power of the gospel are available to everyone who will call on the name of Jesus. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that you would draw them to you, help them understand that Christ's death on the cross paid for their sin, and that his resurrection has freed them from the penalty of death, and that they can come to you and ask for life, that they can receive the gospel, that they can transfer their trust in themselves to you, that what you have done is enough. Would you draw those people to you? And for those of us, Lord, who are wondering about what we should do this week, I pray, O Lord, that you would empower us to be proclaimers and livers of the gospel this week, lovers of people, and livers of the redemptive life that you have given us. In Christ's risen name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we close out by responding to the Lord in this song uh, from the fullness of our hearts and gratitude for him. How firm a foundation he saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. One more can he say than to you he answered, to you for refuge to Jesus have fled. My soul on Jesus has leaned for
So, there we go. It's uh, just settle up for Romans 1 because it's going to go for a whole bunch more. But I want you to remember what he taught us today, and I want you to take that gospel out into the world, and I want you to go in peace. Amen.